is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. So we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 16 this morning, and I'm going to go ahead and read this passage for us and pray, and we will jump right in. So Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between you, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be alone and none may cross from there to us. Then he said, and he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have the Moses and the prophets. Um, Excuse me, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, for if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let me pray for us again. Father in heaven, we pray that these words um, would be true to us today, that they would give us hope and that they would give us faith this morning. Uh, I pray that your word would go forth and would be powerful in our hearts today. Um, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in a series at Trinity Grace on the parables. And parables um, were ways that Jesus told stories to speak to a deeper spiritual reality. And Jesus masterfully tells uh, these parables in the Bible in many different ways. Uh, In some ways, he uses them in order to speak to those uh, whose hearts have already been changed. And at times, he even challenges the religious leaders of the day um, and, and shows them that they truly are wicked. Um, and that they that even though they on the outside appear to be clean and appear to be good, uh, inside their hearts are really dirty. Uh, and Jesus speaks of also building his kingdom. And today, what we're going to see is that this is a very unique parable, as, as Michael had mentioned earlier, uh, because it's a parable about authority. And it's an odd parable because it's a it's a parable where there's this dialogue happening in the afterlife, as I had uh, mentioned, the title of this sermon suggests. Um, so simply put, Jesus is really asking us where we put our authority and, and who we trust. What is our life all about? Um, I was raised in a small town in Texas. The town is called Granbury. 
Uh, and it, it's the kind of town, maybe some of you guys are from these sort of places, where you can kind of expect what people are like. Uh, there's expectations with everything, including uh, someone from a certain part of town, you would expect a certain, uh, to, to live a certain way. If you played sports and you had a reputation, you had expectations of how someone would live. If you were involved in drama or the arts, there were, there were very clear expectations about how someone lived. And the predictability or the expectations bled into the spiritual life in our community, such that everyone would have most likely considered themselves a Christian unless it was very clear that they were not living like a Christian. Um, I would even even say that our town felt incredibly Christian because we would even have, like in our high school, people that would pray in the middle of, uh, you know, public events. And it wasn't weird at all. It It was almost normal that there would be prayer present there. Um, and so in, in this context, you expected everyone to know about Christianity, to know about the Bible, and even to, to walk as though their life was completely surrounded around Christianity. And I mention this because that is the context in a Jewish way of this parable. The rich man and Lazarus, these two figures that we see in this parable, were Jewish men living in a Jewish world. They would have most likely known each other in the temple. They would have most likely known each other in the community. I mean, such that in this parable, we see that the the poor man, Lazarus, is actually lying at the gate of this rich man's home, at his palace or whatever it is here. And the, the, the reason that I can make this statement about the Bible is that we hear when people are different in the Bible. There's another parable in Luke called the Good Samaritan. And the Samaritan was another type of person, a person from Samaria, who also had mixed religious beliefs. And so they were different than a Jewish person. So keep this context in mind as, as we go through this passage, because it's very important. And I think it, it can severely misunderstand how someone looks at this parable because it can easily turn into socioeconomics rather than the heart of the person that's involved. And so in Luke 16, we have the only parable where two people are in the afterlife. Uh, One is a picture of comfort that's found in Lazarus, and the other picture is of utter terror and suffering with the rich man. And the fascinating part is that Lazarus I don't know if you, if you caught this. It took me about five times reading this passage to recognize this. He never speaks in this entire parable. He never communicates. The, the communication, the dialogue is between Abraham and between this rich man. And the, this rich man uh, is, is suffering. Meanwhile, Abraham, uh, and a translation here is that uh, that, that, the, that Lazarus is actually at the bosom of Abraham, not simply at his side, but actually being comforted in his bosom. And so this is a, a, a picture of Lazarus being comforted in heaven and the rich man uh, being tormented in hell. And so the parable really asks us this question, how did these two men end up in these different places? How does the rich man go to hell and Lazarus to heaven. 
And on earth, the men's lives are completely opposite. The rich man is seen in verse 17. It says he was <clears throat> living, a, he, he, he was simply living it up, as we would say in 2020. He was living a, the, the best life possible, at least according to many of our standards. The text even says it this way. He was clothed in purple and fine linen, only the finest people, the royal of, of, of folks in the world were dressed in purple and would wear fine linen, right? His life was met with little resistance personally. And it continues saying this, that he was a man who feasted sumptuously every day. And for those who are like me that had no idea what this word meant, it, it, it simply means that it, it's a splendid and expensive looking when you're talking about a banquet or, or a spread of food. He lived what most of us would consider the good life, the best life. Reality TV would have followed him because he was living such an exciting life. That's the kind of life that this rich man is living. But we recognize in this passage that what Jesus wants us to see is not what's on the surface, but in fact, what is in his heart, because we can tell just by a couple of these clues here that he was very concerned with what was on the surface. He was not as concerned about his heart. The counter to this is the picture of Lazarus. Jesus, now I, I want to make this clear, he isn't talking about his friend Lazarus, who he raises from the dead in, in John chapter 11, but Lazarus was actually a typical name in Israel. It actually, it, it means God heals, which is a really beautiful picture of both Lazarus's, uh, Jesus's friend Lazarus, who he raises from the dead, who he brings back to life, but then also this picture of this man who we find out was poor and was living a terrible life. He was at the gate. Um, at, at the gate was a poor man named Lazarus, the text says, covered in sores covered in sores all around him, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. In other words, he was eating the scraps of what the rich man had. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This physical state of Lazarus is not someone that we would probably want to be around or want to, want to be with in 2020 lingo, he is the person that has a cough. He's the guy that you don't want to be around. A sore on the body in that culture could have meant anything. And it was probably something really bad. And then we see the fact that his only pals are dogs licking his sores. Relationally, he is cut off. He is, he is set apart from being a part of the people of God. And so the parable really begs this question, what is the condition of their hearts? And then it asks us to con consider our heart's condition. What is the condition of your heart? Do you truly believe the words in the Bible are good and true for you and that they would lead you to repentance? They would lead you to realize that your life is not good or perfect and that you need to repent of your own way, of the sin within your heart, and to run to Jesus. The Bible is good news for those that recognize that our hearts are not clean and that we need salvation outside of ourselves. 
And that salvation comes from God alone. And this parable is really pressing into us to say the Bible leads us to repentance. The Bible leads us to repent of the way that we are living, our hearts, desires, the disordered desires that we have in our hearts and to run to Jesus because he is the only one that can save us. Now, if, if you're like me, you know that the Bible has uh, been taken to mean a lot of things. Um, I'm not sure even walking in today how, how you view the Bible. It could be, it, it could be an array of, of different things. Um, and there have been lots of ways that people in our world, even back in Jesus's day, had looked at the Bible. Um, some were looking at it as, as, as a tool to be used. Uh, in fact, in 1820, Thomas Jefferson took a razor blade to the Bible. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this. And he cut out and pasted parts of the Bible that he felt like were, were best in order to to give people an understanding of who Jesus was and what his life was like and what morality was like. So he takes out the, the parts. I'm sure he took out this, this section of the Bible because it was just too miraculous. It's too out, outrageous. And, he get, and, and Jefferson essentially puts together this Bible that showed how Jesus was a really good moral guy who could help lead us in good morality. It presented the Bible as more palatable. There's other ways that the Bible is utilized. Uh, you might be aware that the Bible was used as a weapon for slavery in our history, in American history, or for male dominance, or even for anti-Semitic teaching. The Bible is used for those things. And the Bible is grossly taken out of context, even, even in our day. You probably hear it at times whenever you're, you're speaking with friends or talking with other people. But the Bible is not a tool for power in our sense, a physical power or a way uh, to, to promote an ideology. But it is powerful. The Bible has power in our hearts, even in our world, for change. When we read Isaiah 55, uh, this morning, we, we understand that the, that the word does not return void, which is such good news for us. That when the word goes out, when, when we hear it, it does not return void. That there is something that it, it comes with, but also that there is incredible mystery that is found in the words of scripture. And I think we need to remember that. That not every part of scripture has perfect application to our life right now. That we can't just flip in the, in the pages of the Bible and stop somewhere and say, this is how I need to live my life according to these couple of words. But the Bible is a document that was written for us. And if we understand really the breadth of it, we understand that there is a beautiful way that God's word leads us to repentance personally. And we can even see it in kind of some of the odd places of Scripture. Um, back in the fall of last year, I took students in Orlando through Judges, which just seems like an outrageous, crazy part of the Bible. But it is amazing, even in those wild stories that seem like they have little applicability today, just how applicable some of that stuff is. 
just how applicable it is that God was so good to provide a judge to unfaithful people to give them this person who saved them but was not perfect either. The Lord uses scripture and uses our understanding of it in order to drive us to repentance. And we see in in this passage as well that the rich man does not have mercy in his heart for Lazarus. The condition of Lazarus' heart here, though not explicit, is of a repentant sinner as we see the result after he dies, that he is carried away to the bosom or to the side of Abraham. Lazarus goes from sufferer to comforted upon death. And on the contrary, the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus to give him the kind mercy while he is tormented. And so the takeaway is also that your life right now matters. And your life as a repentant sinner matters. Jesus is is doing something beautiful here. He's giving us a look beyond the visible things and into the afterlife. He's letting us see the reality, the spiritual realities beyond this present reality and all the chaos that we're living right now. Um, And it could be easy for some of us to assume how someone is living based on their car or based on their house or the things that they have, that they're clearly unrepentant. But it's way more difficult for us to look at our own hearts and to challenge our own selves of the ways that we live and how our hearts are drawn to good things because they think that they will give us hope or give us satisfaction. And we have to realize that it is only through the goodness of God, it is only through his word and through the, the love of God that we can truly experience good things. Jesus is not after some quick fix. But again, he wants us to turn to our own hearts. First Samuel 16, seven is a verse that I love. And it's one um, that my kids and I memorized together. There were, there's a, I, I need to remember what this, uh, this album is, but it's, it's kids songs um, for different Bible verses. And this is one that we memorize as a family. Man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. This is talking about the comparison between Samuel and, and David. Samuel says this to the people. The people of God had this image of, of Saul. I, I think I said Samuel. Saul as the strong and valiant warrior. This is how all of the kings and all of the leaders in the world should look. And then we have this picture of David, who's this young man, who's a shepherd, who's a nobody. And he's the one that will become the king. He was the one who God blessed. That, like, th- that image right there is what we ought to run towards as God's people. For not, like, we don't need to be cleaning up the outside of us so that we look like the person that our culture expects. It's our heart's that matter. And Lazarus is such a beautiful example of that today. And so this passage has us wrestling with a lot today based on the idea of repentance. We are drawn to being selfish and to being prideful. And how often do we miss those in our midst? The suffering person. 
How often do we need to consider giving some of our things away for the sake of others? How often do we also become calloused in the world and just not care? It's actually really easy living in the suburbs to be very calloused about how other people are living. Secondly, are we willing to repent of our own desires, as as I mentioned, which means to say that we have to recognize that we are sinful people and that we continue to sin and that often our desires are not for godly living, but for other things. Jesus wants our whole person to be devoted to him. And yet we struggle in those ways where we, we honestly must be conformed by scripture. We must let scripture drive our life and let it be the thing that we, that, that we place our, uh, our desires on. Um, I loved what l- one Lutheran minister said. I just, um, I, I heard this this week and I loved it. When, when challenged about all the misogyny and sexism and the fact that slavery is mentioned in the Bible and murder, um, she responds this way. She says, the Bible is one big messed up family tree. And yet God is all about grace. He is all about pursuing this messed up family tree. I also love what Sally Lloyd-Jones says about the Bible. And this is a paraphrase. The Bible isn't this book of heroes or this book of rules, but in fact, it is this book of God's redeeming story, how he chases after his people because he loves them. What the Bible represents to us is God's grace. He wants to know us in relationships and he actually wants us to to be driven to repent, to repent of our sinfulness. The rich man in this passage, he, he sounds off and he says, please warn my brothers, look, if they see this man, th- th- this beggar come back from the dead to tell them to repent, their life will be better. And Abraham's response is this, he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be, they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, this is clearly talking about Jesus rising from the dead and the fact that, that people would not believe. But this idea of, the, of Moses and the prophets is so important for us because it is clearly speaking of scripture as something that is so vital for our lives and how it must be our guidance. That's really the second point today. And scripture must be our guide. Our service today and the way that we structure things here at Trinity Grace is really surrounded itself around scripture. We want scripture to be at the forefront of your minds and on your hearts as you go forward this day and as you continue to go forward. We want the scriptures to be what you remember when you go from here. We want you to, if if you hear nothing else, hear that the scriptures are the most important thing, that God's word is the most important thing, that not some pithy thing that any of us have said, but that God's word is what you are reminded of and that is on your heart. But are we listening to the scriptures for help when we are in trouble? when we're struggling, when we're lacking direction. The scriptures are an opportunity um, to know God and to be led by the creator, unlike anything else. 
They are God's inspired words. But often we are running to other things. We are running to other things as our guides. Um, By referring to God's word as the law and prophets, we might be confused or even wonder, uh, why why, why is Jesus only talking about the Old Testament? That, that, that's what that simple phrase means, the law and the prophets. And Jesus picks up on it later as well. But for the ancient people, this is all they had. They only had the, the law and the prophets or the Old Testament. But we hear in many parts of the Bible, Jesus referring to the continuity of these two things. Uh, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount relativizes this truth to us. And he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. This is in Matthew 5. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying that the entirety of this Bible matters and is good for you. And it's good for us to hear. Again, it is why we read an Old Testament and a New Testament passage every single week. It is why we ought to be reading in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the, the places in the Bible that we feel like are weird and don't really matter to us. This Jewish man uh, is aware of the necessity of repentance as Abraham was 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago that, um, and Jesus says in order uh, to, he he says it's in order to show God's usefulness of the words to his people as necessary today as they were then. Um, Paul sums it up so beautifully in 2 Timothy chapter three. And we read this earlier, but I think it is, it's so helpful for us to hear it again. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 say this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The Bible is given to us, is a gift to us as an instrument of God's grace. It is something that is useful for us, useful beyond anything else that we can imagine. Um, I recently have um, heard about this, this movement called QAnon. Maybe some of you guys are familiar with it, uh, but it is this faceless organization that presents information about conspiracies going on in the world. Um, and there is, there's been a lot of, stuff floated around, especially on social media, about QAnon. Uh, in fact, when we ordered furniture for our new house, uh, we ordered from Wayfair. And there was hashtag Wayfair going around because this faceless organization, QAnon, had posted almost like a rumor about the conspiracy uh, about Wayfair. You can look it up later, but it's, it's really wild. And so there was an article that was um, given to me this week in a technology magazine that spoke about the tendency for people like us, evangelical Christians, to be prone to this kind of information. And I want to quote from it. It says, QAnon is extremely good at providing followers with an endless supply of hope. New posts appear regularly, 
And if reality doesn't match the predictions about when or how the storm is coming for the world's liberal elites, adherents simply shift their focus to something else. And then later on, it says this, QAnon is extremely good at providing, oh, excuse me, that was the same one. Uh, In a world that feels out of control and hopeless at times, QAnon fills the gaps that many of us need. And then social media lights it up with shares and takes our imagination elsewhere. QAnon for, for some of us are these conspiracies or these ideas about someone that has this hidden truth gives us hope. That, my friends, is an old philosophy that, w- that was happening in the time of the Bible called Gnosticism, that there is some secret knowledge out there that no one knows about. And that if you find it, if you can tap into it, then you're good. Then you know the secret knowledge. And here's what's beautiful about the Bible. It's right here. Christianity is founded on something that you can pick up at a bookstore and that you can study and that you can know about, but it isn't hidden. It requires faith and repentance, but it is right here for us. The scriptures, God, God provided his word to us in order that we may know him. Not that we find some secret information somewhere in some, in, in some social media post, but it is clearly laid out to us. Even though it might be confusing, even though at times we might really wrestle with why does God say these things to us? Why doesn't he allow me to act exactly the way that I want to? God is mysterious and we can lean into that mystery in faith, knowing that he is a good God. The difference in conspiracy theories and scripture is that it is founded and we have a holy God who runs after his children longing to catch them. The conspiracy theories are far away and we have to run to them. God makes himself approachable. He uses beautiful images of his love to show that he really cares for us. Friends, we have the inspired word of God to lead us. We have the inspired word of God to help us repent. Would we be a church that is committing to letting this book guide our hearts, to help us to repent well, to help us to struggle and wrestle well with this book? Would you remember that this is not a book about heroes or about rules or about, uh, about an agenda, but a book that leads you to life? The Old Testament points us to Jesus. The Gospels tell us about Jesus and the rest of the New Testament points us back to Jesus and ultimately gives us hope. We don't simply know about Jesus. We know that he transforms our life and we can continue to be fed in his word. And so as we're led into communion right now during this time, remember that this is an opportunity reading the scripture by yourself and in community with other people to be led uh, by our Lord and to not be led by something else. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for its challenge for us today, uh, for the ways that we are 
um, struggling and stumbling in this life, but Lord, how you um, give us your word clearly. We thank you for um, not being a God who is far away or who is mysterious or who is tricky, but one who wants to be known by us. Father, would we be comforted by that truth and would we walk uh, in faith? And Father, would, would you um, grant us the opportunity to study your word and to know you in deeper ways this morning? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.